Good morning, Church of the Cross. When did you know that you had become an adult? Many cultures have a rite of passage, a ceremony um, or ritual that socially or formally marks that someone has entered into adulthood. Um, Maybe you experienced something like that. Or maybe for you, crossing the threshold into adulthood was marked by something more personal, renting a car, doing your taxes. (laughs) You feel like an adult. It was only two years ago that I crossed one of my own adulthood markers. I paid to have a picture framed. (laughs) My, My grandparents' house was littered with pieces and custom frames, but when I was not quite yet adult, all my pre-made frames came from 50% off sales at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> Corners were trimmed or mashed to fit into a frame that wasn't quite the right size. Because of this, I knew I was really just a child. <laughs> then one day, I brought a picture into a store and paid to have it custom framed. And as I walked out of the store, I felt like an adult. It was still Hobby Lobby, so I was a thrifty adult. (laughs) Framing is a marker for me because it says I have something to display that's worthy of a frame. And as a mature grown-up, I know that the right frame can make all the difference. On the website minted.com, you can pick out an art print and then digitally try on frames. It can take something you like and turn it into something you don't like. And it can take that same piece and make you say, add to cart. Our gospel reading today has us encountering one frame of the faith, of the scriptures, the frame the Sadducees use. And here, Jesus sets about reframing. In this part of Luke, Jesus is being presented with tricky questions by different groups of people, different streams or sects of Judaism. Each time, he approached the people and the questions with presence and skill. He is impressive. In each of these encounters, it ends in silence on behalf of those asking the questions, without fail. There's not a tremendous amount we can say about the Sadducees beyond what we know here. They considered the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, to be the most important. Because they didn't believe bodily resurrection was attested to in those five books, it wasn't attested to by Moses, it wasn't a valid interpretation of the faith. It was something added on by other people. For those who didn't believe in the resurrection, though, there was still a sense that one might live on, live on through children, particularly male children. Male heirs extend the family line, and that way someone might live on. They carry their father's name and are able to keep any inheritance or property left to them. In that way, the parents, or particularly the father, might live on even after he's passed. The question here from the Sadducees then is not really about how the resurrection works. It's a rhetorical question to showcase that it can't possibly work. Either you follow Moses and say there's no resurrection, 
or you admit that what you believe is illogical and outside the realm of Torah truth. We don't run into many Sadducees in Austin, um, but we probably have, have friends or family members who might substitute Moses with something like science when it comes to the resurrection. Either you follow science and say there is no resurrection, or you admit that what you believe is illogical and outside the realm of scientific truth. And whether it's science or Moses or something else, this isn't an entirely unfamiliar situation. I don't think we're unaccustomed to being asked questions that intentionally seem lose-lose. And what does Jesus do with such people, with such a contrived situation and question? He engages. He answers them. He doesn't quit because it wasn't sincere or walk away because he's being set up for mockery. Jesus will be mocked and more harshly before the end of Luke's gospel. Even in this passage, we see glimpses of his commitment to humanity. I'll admit, though, sometimes I don't want Jesus to engage. <laughs> sometimes I want him to pack up his toys and go and say, no, you don't mean it, I'm not playing. <laughs> I don't always love that God sows his word on the hard path as well as on good soil. How quick I am to forget about the places of my own heart that are hard soil. In the end, I find it both a little irritating and immensely comforting. Jesus engages and he answers, but he doesn't play their game. He gives what Samuel Wells, an Anglican priest who pulls from the discipline of improv, he would call a transformative yes. He gives a yes and that reframes our scene in several ways. First, Jesus reframes the question. The question the Sadducees ask plays out like a logic puzzle. It draws from Deuteronomy 25, a provision regarding brothers who live together. If one brother dies having no son, the other brother is to marry his wife and attempt to provide a son. This is an unappealing prospect to us today. <laughs> um, when you look more closely at the provision, though, something comes into focus. The idea of a name being carried on is integrally connected to care for the widow. This isn't some far-off relative, like we might find later in the book of Ruth. In this provision, these are brothers who live together. Will she get to stay in her home, or will she be tossed out? In a time and culture of Deuteronomy, if you were a woman and did not have a male family member to care for you, you were incredibly vulnerable. So a brother-in-law would temporarily be that person for you until you had a son of age who would grow and take on the deceased husband's name and take on the caretaking. Further, if the brother-in-law refused to do this, and I love this part, there was a public shaming ceremony for him. <laughs> 
the widow would take off her brother-in-law's sandal and spit in his face in front of the elders. And this brother-in-law's new family name, in the presence of everyone, that family name would change. It is no longer the name he has. It would become the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> if you did not do this, if you did not honor this woman, this family line, your name will become your disobedience. And your brother's widow gets to spit on your face in front of all the people. Fun times. <laughs> So the Sadducees have taken this provision, this particular practice that, frankly, may not even be practiced in their time, and they try to show how it's logically incompatible with resurrection. Unfortunately, they choose to do this in a way that is, even if an improbable situation, is deeply tragic and troubling. The question is not just lose-lose, it's a horror story for this woman. And the question isn't, how might this be redeemed in the resurrection? The question is, whose is she? So, Jesus reframes the question. Have you ever heard the phrase, fix that for you? It's recently become a bit of a popular phrase because there's been what I would call a little bit of a headline revolution. Headlines are often meant to draw interest and intrigue, but people have realized that many headlines in their attempt to do this end up honoring dishonorable people. So it might say something like, amazing person does horrible thing. Many have taken to editing headlines, saying things like, no, horrible person does horrible thing, with a note that says, fix that for you. Here, Jesus begins his response with an initial, fix that for you. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. The phrase, are given in marriage, is more literally to allow oneself to be married. It's hard to capture what Jesus does here so deftly, but he immediately includes women and their agency as having a share in both this age and in the age to come. And by doing so, he brings a renewed dignity and respect to every person represented in their question. Men and women alike are all more than a fertility problem to be solved. He fixes their headline. It's not that Jesus has a logic problem. He is here and elsewhere quite incredibly logical. It's just that he refuses to give logic void of genuine human impact. Jesus reframes the question to include both logic and compassion because in him love and truth are wed. There is no carrot no stick, there is wholeness. So Jesus takes their question and he reframes it to be whole. Where might we need to receive the questions given to us and reframe them to be whole? 
It's interesting to me to think that reframing the question is less about limiting the other person's question, but about expanding it. What might it look like to reframe the questions you come up against, either in your own heart or from the lips of others? What might it look like to reframe these questions by giving more respect, more dignity, or a more compassionate perspective? Jesus reframes the question, and then he sets about reframing the age to come. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Jesus draws a pretty stark distinction between the present age and the age to come. And the age to come, the latter one, doesn't involve marriage. And the age to come needs are met in such a way that marriage, that is, mosaic, this specific mosaic provision as well, doesn't exist. Why? Because they cannot die anymore. And in this way, they're like the angels. The people of the resurrection are not subject to demise through decline, disease, or accident. This provision only exists in a world with death. This is humbling because we do spend an awful lot of time thinking about marriage and children, about weddings and procreation. (laughs) Marriage workshops and retreats, couples counseling, dating apps, and pursuing finding someone, or even if we're content in our celibacy, we just know that some schmo at the next wedding we're going to is going to ask us, so is there someone special in your life? (laughs) And then you're expected to not roll your eyes. (laughs) Not to mention, we might start to wonder, what does it mean if they didn't ask me that this time? (laughs) We think about marriage and children a lot in this age. Is that wrong? I mean, if we're supposed to be people who are ambassadors of the kingdom that is at hand and is to come, what does that mean for our relationship to marriage? I'm sorry to disappoint you, but if you feel like I'm going to answer that in fullness (laughs) in this setting, in one sermon, you maybe have misjudged what could be covered. (laughs) But a few things it does mean for us and has meant for the people of Israel and for the church. In a world with death, destruction, and decay, it means we must care for the vulnerable. We see this now even in the church in its very purpose and natural overflow of being the people of Israel. Care for the widow and orphan. Luke's gospel is full of what we might call the ministry of mercy, extending goodness to people in the here and now, saving them in the here and now. Take care of the vulnerable. In this way, you do enact the kingdom of God that is to come because in the resurrection, these needs will be met. You get to participate in the needs of the vulnerable being met now. And just as we saw with the provision in Deuteronomy, this is intertwined with your name, sons of God, men and women of God, men and women of the resurrection. You are called to be a people. 
You are in the family household of God in ways that are both new and now and not yet. And good news, your name no longer needs proliferation. (laughs) You are a part of a never-ending line, a heritage that will pass through death and be raised up. Now, the truth is, we don't quite as much try to live on through passing our names. I'm not putting a lot of stock in the name of Smith. (laughs) But we do try, in our own ways, to live on just as tenaciously. It's just that we do it through a more obscure concept, our legacy. (laughs) We want to make our mark, and that may be through work or children, We want to accomplish something in the world, preferably with our name attached to it. A contribution, sure, but especially a recognized contribution. Dr. Patrick Fung is the director of a mission agency called OMF, formerly known as China Inland Missions. He gave a wonderful interview at an Urbana missions conference 10 years ago, and in it, he relayed this experience. He said, a number of years ago, I was at a library in a university in London, and I was led to this archive department. And I entered this big room, huge, like a warehouse. And there were columns and columns of files. And this chief archivalist, who's not a believer, she said to me something I never forgot. (coughs) She said, each file represents one life that gave themselves to God, to the gospel, and to the Chinese people. When I heard that, I was totally speechless, and I began to cry. That was a hundred years ago, and there were thousands of people. Most of their names will never make it into the history books. And that really convinced me that some of the most important workers for the kingdom of the 21st century are the nameless people. They make Christ visible, not themselves. It should not surprise you then that he authored a book entitled Live to be Forgotten. (laughs) Putting our hope in the resurrection necessitates being open-handed with the statuses, accomplishments, and accolades of a world subject to death. This doesn't mean we don't seek to do good and do good well. This doesn't mean we don't pursue God's invitation to marriage or celibacy in the here and now. It just means that those things that are attached to it, the statuses, the accomplishments, the accolades, they are poor frames for the kingdom to come. So Jesus reframes the question a bit. Then he reframes the understanding of the age to come. And finally, Jesus reframes scripture. Part of the deeper testing of the Sadducees was this question, do you follow Moses? If you follow Moses and the Pentateuch as seriously as we do, you'll distance yourself from this idea of bodily resurrection. (laughs) Obviously, Jesus did not distance himself from bodily resurrection. Jesus said, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all 
live to him. I'd love to put a slide up um, for us. Okay, how, how many of you know what this is? A little bit there? Um, the technical name for this is an autostereogram, but you might know it better as a magic eye picture. <laughs> what happens with a magic eye is that there's a way of looking at this. The seemingly flat picture, oh, back one more. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. There's a way of looking at this where you can see a 3D image projected off the page, not with special glasses, with your very own eyes. And you may or may not have spent a frustrated afternoon as a child or adult, no judgment, <laughs> trying to get the magic eye picture to leap off the page. And you either decided that they were stupid and you didn't care anyway, or you got it and felt like you had special powers and triumphantly shouted, it's a shark, <laughs> right up until it disappeared again. <laughs> On the next slide, there's a visual of how magic eyes work. On this side, we see how we normally look at pictures. Our eyes focus on what we're looking at, on what's in front of us. And on the right is how to successfully look at a magic eye. If you want to see the 3D image, you have to focus your eyes in such a way as to look through or look beyond the image. It remains quite psychedelic. <laughs> But it's this kind of vision, this kind of ability to see in this way that Job has in mind. He has this kind of perspective in our passage today. Even in suffering, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another or from a different angle, Frederick Douglass wrote in 1862, there is a prophet within us. I would say there's a, there's a prophetic spirit, the spirit of God within us, forever whispering that behind the seen lies the immeasurable unseen. In many ways, this is what Jesus is doing here with scriptures. The Sadducees and Jesus are looking at the scriptures in this moment, and they see different things. Where their eyes are focused makes all the difference. Looking in front of them at this world and at this life, the Sadducees can't see the resurrection. It's not there. It's flat. But Jesus draws their attention, their focus, to the God who reveals himself to his people and through his scriptures. He draws their attention to his life-giving purposes, his desire to save people to the uttermost. When your eyes rest on him, the intended picture emerges. Jesus is quite remarkable in this moment, able to take what the Sadducees bring, an insincere question, an attempt to shame. And Jesus receives them, and he reframes their question, and he reframes the age to come, the resurrection and he reframes the scriptures. What questions are you bringing to the Lord today? 
Questions that are sincere, humble, and eager are so often set up for transformation. But take heart that even if your questions feel like they come with some less desirable features, maybe your questions come alongside wounds or defensiveness, God will hear you out. Your question and the question behind it. And to both, he responds. Like we see in our passage today, God's response often involves an invitation to reframe more than what we asked about. (laughs) Jesus is generous like that. This is part of his deep goodness to us, that he doesn't stick to our limited script, but invites us into the immeasurable. May we all receive Jesus' generous reframing in our lives today. Let us pray. Lord, you are the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We thank you that you are a God who reveals himself to particular people in history and that you are revealing yourself to us, a particular people in history now. We thank you that you are the God of the living and that all live to you. Lord, would you give us hearts that will respond to your reframing? God, give us the grace not to shut down or dig our heels in when we hear your voice, but to listen and to allow our lives, ourselves, our perspective of the world and its ages, would you allow those to be formed by you? Lord, we ask that you would give us joy in your presence, knowing that because you live, we, your children, also live. God, we ask that you would give us a glimpse of the immeasurable today through your word, your sacraments, and your people. We ask these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.